0: Hello, and welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Benner, and today I'm sharing episode 62 with Allison Mitchell. Allison is the executive director over at the Indiana Recycling Coalition, which is a nonprofit in the state of Indiana, and they focus on education and advocacy to inspire the Indiana community, businesses, institutions, and governments to encourage waste reduction, reuse, recycling, and composting. And through that, they have a mission to strengthen the circular economy in Indiana. I really enjoyed my conversation with Allison and was able to hear more about the recycling process itself, as well as ask some of my own personal recycling questions. Allison also shares her path to becoming the Executive Director of the Indiana Recycling Coalition some ways that you can improve your own recycling habits, how recycling impacts jobs, the economy, and the environment, and what the organization is currently working on in terms of their education, advocacy, and working with their partners. All right, I hope you enjoy my conversation with Allison Mitchell and getting a little peek into the recycling industry. Today on the podcast, I am so excited to be interviewing Allison Mitchell. Thanks for coming on, Allison. Hey, thanks for having me, Emma. Yeah, so I found you through your work at the Indiana Recycling Coalition, and I wanted to get you on the show to ask all of my big recycling questions, because I'm always trying to figure out new ways to up my recycling game. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) I'll try to answer them all. (laughs) So you are the re- executive director at the Indiana Recycling Coalition. Was working in the recycling industry always your goal? Or how did you end up working for that organization?
1: Uh, yeah, no, I, um, I've been in sustainability my whole career. Never um, knew that I would end up kind of devoted to recycling. Um, but when I think back over my childhood and where my interests were as a child, I'm, I'm kind of not surprised also to find myself here. So, um, yeah, I've I've been, um, I've done a lot of things in the sustainability field. So I'm really, um, blessed to be in this position and have the opportunity to improve recycling in the state of Indiana, where I'm from.
0: What were some of the things you did before your current position? So I
1: took kind of a circuitous route to get here. I started in landscape horticulture and design, uh, and that took me into landscape architecture. And through a master's degree in landscape architecture at the University of Michigan, my studio space was in a lead gold building, and that was the first I had ever heard of that. And so I discovered the whole world of sustainability through that degree program. And uh, by the time I'd finished that degree and was starting off on my career, I knew that I had to be pursuing a career in sustainability in one way, shape, or another, and didn't see a ton of avenues for doing that through... Uh, landscape architecture in Indiana at the time, but the green building movement was taking off. And so I got very interested and very engaged in that I networked as much as I could in the sustainability field and was able to land a position in the uh, city of Indianapolis's Office of Sustainability right after it was originally formed back in 2008. And that was really a pivotal moment for me. Uh, I knew that I wanted to kind of dedicate my career to sustainability at that point. Um, so it's it's taken a lot of different forms. I've done some teaching. I've worked in statewide nonprofits, uh, a little bit in the solar industry, um, and meanwhile was getting a law degree with a focus on natural resources and environment and knew I wanted to to be part of impacting policy in the state of Indiana to protect the environment.
0: And then after, did you get your law degree? I did, yes. Okay. And is that what led you to your current position? Um, not exactly. I was actually, um,
1: I had my own sustainability consulting company for several years um, after I graduated law school. and had gotten to do some contract work with another statewide nonprofit organization uh, called Prosperity Indiana. And it was focused, I was their director of sustainability and I was the position was focused on the solar industry. And so that that experience gave me the opportunity to work for a statewide nonprofit organization to kind of see how it functioned from the inside out. And um, While I was in that role, uh, this position opened up because my predecessor was um, in the state legislature and wanted to focus her career more on on that role. And so um, when this position became available, I felt like I had just the right mix of experience and uh, knowledge to take it on. And uh, when they were interviewing for the position, they the board of directors let me know that you know they really wanted to prioritize addressing the recycling challenges in the city of indianapolis and so it sounded like a big hairy problem and that's all i needed i was in i want i i never um i'm always attracted to taking on a big project i i don't like to just go to work every day and do a job for the sake of doing a job so that, um, they kind of dangled that carrot out in front of me. And I was, I was happy to take it on.
0: And I guess I'm curious, how does your law background come into play with this kind of thing?
1: Yeah. So the, um, I, you know, it's funny that I, I, when I went to law school, it was, I really was, um, at the time was more interested in getting, uh, sustainable development MBA. And those were very few and far between at the time. And I had a brother-in-law who was finishing up law school at the time. And he said, you, you should go to law school. And I was like, no, nah, I don't want to practice law. And he's like, you know, you don't have to practice law with a law degree. You can do other things. And that kind of opened my mind up to go, oh, wait, you know, there is a whole other side of this um, around policy advocacy that I could, that I could pursue. Mm -hmm. Um, so the ability to um, think like a lawyer has been very beneficial to me in this role Um, it's a lot of what you do in a nonprofit is managing risk and um, knowing how to um, influence behavior um, incentivize behavior reward good behavior. And so there's a lot that you can learn um, about those things when in a legal setting. So I was, um, you know, definitely not something I would have thought I would have ended up doing when I was in law school. But I also didn't have a very predetermined outlook on how I wanted to apply my law degree, other than I wanted to um, advocate for positive change as it related to the environment in the state of Indiana. So um, I kind of let go of exactly what that looked like and just sort of trusted that the universe would lead me where I needed to go. And I, I do feel like the universe has led me right to where I needed to be in this, in this role.
0: Yeah. Your role sounds like it's a perfect fit for what you want to do.
1: Yeah, it is. I, I love it. And I feel very lucky that I have this opportunity to, to do this job and to do it right now at a time when there's so much going on in the world and uh, in particular in the recycling world. You know, when I took this job in March of 2018, that was just two months after China, the China ban went into effect whereby the Chinese government stopped accepting the world's recyclables and it oh. completely upended the entire recycling industry globally. Um, so it it was like, okay, I knew I was stepping in to address a big challenge here in Indianapolis. And then we have that kind of global earthquake happen. And I was like, okay, this will be fun. Let's do this. So,
0: (laughs) yeah, wow. I never, that didn't even cross my mind that the shutdowns and bans and everything could have had a major effect on the recycling industry too.
1: Yeah, it's, it was, um, it left a lot of countries and a lot of states in the US scrambling for how they're going to manage their recycling and what's became apparent to me pretty quickly um, was that the state of Indiana was really well positioned to turn that China ban situation into a net positive for the state we had all the infrastructure we had all of the pieces all the components for the system we just needed to make it function more efficiently and start capturing our own recyclables. And we were—we have all this infrastructure, we're not even using it to its highest and best because we're not doing a great job as a state, and, and certainly not in the city of Indianapolis, at capturing uh, and diverting our own recyclable materials into that system. So it's really just, I tell people, it's just ours for the taking and uh, it's my job to connect all of those players, connect all of those components of the system to maximize their efficiency, and encourage state and local governments to do their part to incentivize the behavior of recycling and waste diversion. So um, there's there's a lot of great uh, components to be, uh, found in the midst of this kind of global upending. Uh, so it's, it's really fun to me to sort of take those types of situations and try to glean out the positives and, and, and spin it and make it work in a way that's a net positive for everyone.
0: Wow. I, that is so cool that it's able to turn around and help the United States get better at recycling within its own system.
1: Right, yeah, and you know we we can be the solution for other states for their recycling mm-hmm. um, just because of the infrastructure that we already have here in Indiana, and that's thanks in large part to our manufacturing system and our and our economy, um, the industry of manufacturing here, but also um, it sure doesn't hurt that we have a flat topography um, and we have the crossroads of America. Logistics and transportation network that we do. So those are the those are the things that we can most use to turn recycling into a significant economic gain for the state of Indiana. Then you throw COVID in the mix, which that's been you know that that's been the great disruptor no one saw coming. And uh, also there are opportunities within COVID to um, make a positive change and capture people's attention and help them understand the value of this kind of uh, under public service of managing waste, uh, we, can, we can use that and the fact that folks are kind of slowing down right now uh, to educate them and, and make them more knowledgeable participants within that system.
0: Mm, interesting, very interesting. So how long have you been at your current role? So about two and a half years. Okay, so it's pretty relatively new then. Mm-hmm, yep. So talk a little bit about the organization itself and how it came to be and how has it changed over the years that it has been in
1: place. So the Indiana Recycling Coalition was formed in 1989 uh, in Bloomington, Indiana by um, a group of dedicated individuals that were really coming together around the idea of sustainable waste management and helping folks understand and build the infrastructure within the state of Indiana to recycle. So it started as a grassroots organization and over our 30 years of existence has um, evolved into, An organization that represents the industry, as well as concerned citizens and environmental groups and state and local government to. um, Coalesce around this notion of sustainable materials management and here in the last few years, um, a broader understanding of um, how recycling is really just a component of the circular economy and that reduce and reuse are really critical elements Um, and you know recycling is fantastic and is definitely worthwhile and we should all do it and do it to the best of our ability but if recycling is all we do we are we are missing the point so we're we're really still evolving into that space of being engaged in a broader conversation about the circular economy
0: does each state have um a like a nonprofit or, like similar to the Indiana Recycling Coalition? Does each state have one of those? And then maybe is there multiple in each state? Is this the biggest one in Indiana? Kind of talk about that.
1: Yeah. So we are um, we are known as and our peers are known as a state recycling organization, and there are several um, across the country, and they look a little different. So in in the Northeast, for example, several states. Um have a regional recycling organization. Um, California has a statewide. Our, our neighbors here, Michigan, has a Michigan Recycling Coalition. Some states, like Kentucky, does not have one. Or I should say, Kentucky does not have a state recycling organization. So it looks a little different. Um, there are also some regional, um, so like metropolitan. Uh, area type organizations with a focus on sustainable materials management. Uh, So it kind of, it just depends. It looks a little different everywhere, but yeah, we are, uh, we all get together um, and at conferences and share with one another best practices and support each other in our efforts. We um, at the Indiana Recycling Coalition had our annual conference back in June, and we were one of the first of our peers to pivot from an in-person multi-day event, which a lot of our, our peers also host, we were the first to sort of make that pivot to to all virtual. And so we we kind of felt the the weight and the pressure of like we are setting an expectation and, and um, we are learning for on you know on behalf of ourselves but also for our peers as well. So we were very um, pleased with how that turned out and we were we were even more pleased that we were able to capture what we learned and share that with our peers across the country. Several of which have taken, taken advantage of that learning process and, and we're so pleased that they have had the ability to use that.
0: This was a virtual event before COVID or during COVID?
1: Um, in the past, it was a three-day in-person event here in Indianapolis. Okay. This year, it was a five-day virtual event. So learning how to do a virtual exhibit hall and networking mm, sessions yeah. was, we, you know, by the time we got to June, we were all pretty good at Zoom, right?
0: <laughs> but the whole world.
1: Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, it, the, the hard part was really how do we reimagine a exhibit hall and how do we host live virtual networking events? Um, so we found some really great platforms, and we were very pleased with the feedback that we got. Folks felt like it was as as close to in person as they as they expected it could ever be, and in some cases, folks even said we exceeded their expectations. So we were very pleased to be able to do that. Looks like we might get the chance to do that again in 2021, so.
0: Yeah, awesome to hear you You had so so much success with that, but hopefully it'll be in person again someday. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, so you talked about the importance of before recycling, reducing and reusing, Mm -hmm. how we want to limit recycling and garbage. What are ways we can get creative with doing this? So a lot of it has to do
1: with purchasing decisions that we make. There's been an explosion over the last, I don't know, 10 to 20 years maybe of the packaging that has been designed to make our lives as simple as possible. A perfect example of this. You may remember that applesauce used to come in a jar.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
1: Applesauce now comes in so many formats that it's kind of mind blowing. You can get it in the little single serve cups, you can get it in a plastic jar, you can get it in a pouch, you can probably even get it in like a squeezy tube like they do the yogurt, you know. Um, So that has, take that and multiply it times every item that surrounds you. There are so many consumer options and it's really, it's kind of overwhelming, right? You go to the, the applesauce section of the store or the whatever section of the store. And it's, it's not even as much about the product as much as what form you want it in. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of the form that you buy products in and how you consume products and even the choice to consume a product may has a waste outcome. There's an impact there. Um, so every every consumer has the opportunity, and I would posit the responsibility to be mindful when they make those decisions about whether or not they're going to buy something and what form it's going to take, and is it packaged in a way that minimizes single-use plastic, particularly if it's a single-use plastic that cannot be recycled. So an example, and I like to rib on my husband whenever I get the chance, <laughs> uh, he, he went to Costco for us mm-hmm. recently, and we, we just get a handful of things because we like to buy certain things in bulk, Um, So Costco is the place, right? So he goes and left to his own devices, you know, on a Friday afternoon, not too many people. He ends up walking out with a box of pouches of applesauce.
0: Oh, no. (laughs) He
1: He comes home and I just gave him this side eye look and he was like... Oh, I should not have bought that. Once you go pouch, you can't go back like with a four-year-old and a five-year-old. So. Oh my gosh yeah. so we had to have that conversation about, you know, we've been buying applesauce in a large plastic jar because we can minimize single-use plastic and then you then you go and buy this. This is like against everything we believe yeah. in from a packaging standpoint. So he kind of, um, Laughed at himself and said, Yeah, I, I probably won't be doing that again. So,
0: <laughs> oh my gosh, that's funny. But then on the other side of it, I've heard, you know, I've often heard people grab a water, a plastic water bottle. Right. And say, Well, it's, you know, and if someone says, Well, why can't you just fill up your own reusable water bottle? And they're like, Well, it's going to get recycled. But then, on the other side of that, I've heard that only 9% of plastics mm-hmm. in the United States is actually recycled. Right. So is this true? Is that plastic water bottle I know there's on the other on the front end of that the energy it takes and the resources it takes to even build that plastic water bottle, but right. on the back end will that get recycled or might it potentially just end up in the landfill?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. A lot of times when we are in that situation to grab the plastic water bottle you know hopefully it's your someplace and you're getting takeout or and it's not you know you're buying cases of plastic water bottles at Mm -hmm. home you know that seems that seems excessive and like an expense also that could be eliminated because it's tap water from somewhere else put in a bottle shipped across the country and then put into this like Virgin plastic single-use container. So, so that's an obvious one that seems like probably not the best idea. Um, but if you're if and if you're like me, every now and then you are caught off guard. You left your water, your reusable water bottle at home. You you grab that plastic water bottle, and you. What you need to be mindful of is when it's time to dispose of this. Are you going to just get rid of it as quickly as you can, and you're going to throw it in some? recycling bin maybe in a public space that you don't really know if it's going to get recycled or are you going to take it home and put it in your own recycling bin where you can have a little bit more connection and control over it getting recycled. Limitedly as that may be, it's a little bit more control. Well, because if you're putting, if you're in Indianapolis, for example, you're paying for curbside recycling. Uh You put it in your curbside recycling bin, you have pretty good feeling pretty good sense it's going to get recycled Got it. yeah when you're in a public space or you know i look for example i go to restaurants or places where there's a recycling bin if you peek down in that recycling bin you're like yeah that's not a lot of recycling in there uh, that that doesn't give me a lot of confidence that that's actually going to get recycled so okay
0: it, you when, think they'll just grab it and put it in the landfill then well if
1: the recycling bin is first of all lined with a black plastic trash bag liner that's (laughs) not that's definite. it doesn't matter what goes in there it's not going to get recycled um bagged recyclables just don't get recycled it is a health and safety hazard for the folks at the sorting facility so when they when bagged recyclables come in they get pulled over into the trash So never put your recyclables in a bag or bag your own recyclables at home. Um, So it's always best to bring your own reusable water bottle. I've been known to sort of um, forego a plastic water bottle and be totally parched, but I'm thinking to myself, well, that serves me well for forgetting to bring my water bottle. I won't forget that next time. Or, you know, it's, it's hard to always avoid it, like even, somebody like me who's hyper-conscious of single-use plastic water bottles, there are still times when I'm kind of caught off guard and have to use a plastic water bottle. It's, it's kind of what happens to that plastic water bottle after the fact um, that can ensure a little more success or not in, in the final fate of that single-use plastic water bottle. So always best to bring a reusable, um, but when you can't, uh, for whatever reason, just be mindful of, of how and where you throw it.
0: Yeah. I'm the same way with the, when you are in a pinch and you forgot your water bottle and you have to grab a plastic water bottle, just like the feeling I get is like, Oh no, I screwed up. Or when I go to the grocery store without my reusable plastic or reusable, um, grocery bags and I have to mm-hmm. grab a plastic bag. It's like my, I can't sleep at night. <laughs> I yeah. feel so terrible for what my actions, but, yeah, um, but in that sense, once it leaves, your curb in the recycling bin, mm-hmm. does all of that really get recycled? Because I've heard there's just sometimes not a use for it mm-hmm. or it just doesn't end up being recycled. Only a certain percent of it does. What is that like actually?
1: Yeah. So there's a lot of factors at play that will determine the fate of what happens to that single use plastic water bottle in your in your curbside bin. The first is is it contaminated? Is is the bin that it's in contaminated? So did you recycle right? Did you not bag your recyclables? Like if you make it that far, that's great. You've you've ensured a lot a large degree of success just by doing it right um, at your own home in your own bin. The second part of it is what's the market currently for that particular commodity material. In the case of a clear plastic water bottle, that is plastic number 1 which is PET, that is a high value high value plastic of the whole spectrum of plastics, number 1s and number 2s, which would be your plastic milk jugs. Those are your highest value plastics. Those are going to get pulled out first because of that higher value, and they will get recycled. As you go higher in the number of plastic, the value goes lower because okay. it's a more complicated material, it's more, there are more components to that plastic and the, the ability for it to be recycled goes down. So those plastics, three through seven, have very limited market value. So that's where that 9% comes in. It's because there's, you know, majority of plastic in, in your household is not number one and number two. It's three through seven. Okay. A lot of people see the chasing arrows with the number on the, in, on the bottom of their container, their, their, you know, food packaging container or their mm-hmm. takeout container. They see that chasing arrow. And they immediately just assume, Oh, that means it's recyclable. That is not what that symbol means. So that number and the chasing arrows on the bottom of your plastic container really just tells you the type of plastic that it's made from, not whether or not it's recyclable. And that can be very confusing to people because they, for a long time, they were under the assumption that that chasing arrow with a number just meant it's recyclable. So we're having to, like, unlearn that that um, habit and get into the habit of looking for plastic one and plastic two in the form of a bottle or a jug. And those are the plastics that you should be putting in your recycling bin. So that is your plastic water bottles and your plastic beverage containers, that is your Uh, your body wash bottle, um, your household cleaning products, but not the trigger mechanism because there's actually metal in that. So there's simple rules around what types of plastics are recyclable, but then there's nuances to it as well. So it's confusing, it's frustrating, and when you learn how to recycle properly, you're very quickly... You start to get very frustrated at all the things you can't put in your recycling bin anymore that you've been putting in your recycling bin for years the plastic tubs that yogurt comes in that butter and sour cream really those aren't recyclable those are plastic number five and those in your curbside bin those are not recyclable wow there's no market for that plastic right now that and the facility that sorts them is not set up to sort those plastics very well so it's both the form and the number of plastic in that case but there is a little hope on the horizon here especially as it relates to plastics three through seven there is a facility that's under construction right now up in northeast indiana in ashley and it's called brightmark and they will be accepting plastics three through seven and they will be it's a form of recycling it's not traditional recycling it's kind of a chemical recycling process they will be converting through the process of pyrolysis uh, plastics three through seven into a component for fuel and industrial grade wax so it's not one-to-one recycling like your plastic milk bottles or milk jugs and your plastic Mm -hmm. water bottles those can be turned into Another plastic water bottle, another milk jug. Sometimes it's, it's turned into you know polyester fibers for carpet and for clothing. So it's not as linear or, or sorry circular I should say um, as that type of recycling. But it's it's a heck of a lot better than just having to landfill or incinerate all of the plastics three through seven. So your curbside hauler here in Indy has still not you know, recycling those plastics three through seven, but there's hope that in the next, you know, six months to a year, they will have an outlet nearby and it's, it's economical for them to collect it and ship it up to Northeast Indiana for that process. So stay tuned for that. But for now, and it, <clears throat> it's, it's honestly, it's been the case for a very long time. The only plastic that's getting recycled that you put in your recycling bin is number one and two Mm. in the form of bottles and jugs.
0: Wow, that's a bummer. So if I were to put one of those butter tubs or something Mm -hmm. else that's not recyclable in my curbside recycling, does that contaminate the whole recycling and and all of it just gets thrown out? Or do they still sort it? So something like that,
1: they're gonna be able to sort it out.
0: Okay. Now, if
1: your butter tub was full of butter and it got you know, it leaked, and butter got on the other plastics. It got on the fiber, and your Amazon cardboard boxes that you had so painstakingly broken down and flattened. Because <laughs> I know you're, because I know you're doing that, right? And
0: <laughs> well, should we? Uh, is that like good? for Absolutely. Recycling? Okay. Yes.
1: So the way that fiber and paper get sorted out is actually because it's flat, because it's it's mm. broken down. So you should always break down your, your Amazon boxes, no matter how small the Amazon box, um, you can even just step on it if it's small enough, you know?
0: So if it's not broken down, will it be, um, will it not be recycled? No,
1: it, it might still get recycled, but it will, it will be assured to get recycled much better. Yeah. And it's just better for the, the collection and sortation process if Mm. it's broken down.
0: Okay. So back to the contaminated butter container. Yeah. what were you saying on that?
1: So if the butter gets on other things, that's like a different form of contamination where it um, affects other recyclable things and makes them no longer recyclable. It's like the you know if the if the pizza box is is caked with cheese, you know that's not recyclable. Mm-hmm. Um, so your you know your plastics three through seven that can be sorted out it won't necessarily contaminate the whole load, but the best thing to do is to reduce all forms of contamination, both in, in the you know, items that you wish could be recycled, but can't be. So, you know, stopping wish cycling is a, is a really important way to fight contamination. And the other thing is empty, clean and dry. So you've been probably rinsing your, steel can of black beans you know Mm -hmm. after you pour out the black beans you give it a rinse you give it a swirl and you dump out that water so that's empty clean and dry and you know it doesn't have to be like bone dry like it's it's got to be dry and that it's not full of water um you don't have to like get in there and dry it out manually but like just make sure it's not full of liquid
0: so how clean does it have to be because I mean, maybe now I'm realizing a peanut butter jar isn't recyclable, but it is sometimes those things are super hard to clean and you might leave a little residue. Is that contaminated? How clean do I need to get it?
1: So a little bit of residue is totally fine. Um, you know, I you think about the ketchup bottle, the, the goopy ketchup that's at the top. Mm-hmm. You don't have to worry about that. Okay, Rinse, rinse it out. Do do what you can with a little bit of water and a little bit of, you know, swishing and swirling. Um, but you definitely don't have to run anything through the dishwasher. Oh, okay. Soap is, soap is, is purely optional. You could probably get most of it done um, with just warm water.
0: So what should I say to someone or what can people say to someone who doesn't believe that recycling works and how can we encourage recycling within our own personal communities and groups of people?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I would, especially here in Indiana, you can point to the number of materials, processors, and manufacturers whose uh, business is reliant upon recycled materials in their, um, as inputs, as feedstock to making their products. There's a great example of that up in Valparaiso, a company called Pratt. They are a paper mill and they manufacture corrugated boxes. They rely on 100% recycled feedstock. They're a paper mill that doesn't cut down a single tree. Mm. So they want every single Amazon box they can get their hands on. Because and they
0: convert that into paper.
1: They convert it into corrugated and then they make another Amazon box. Oh, they,
0: got it, wow. They
1: make all kinds of cardboard packaging. Some of it is the kind of things, you know, when you go down the grocery store aisle and they annoyingly put those little cardboard displays in the aisle. Yeah. <laughs> and you have to, man- you know, you have to maneuver around those. A lot of those are made from corrugated cardboard and they're, you know, marketing graphics all over them. They make those types of corrugated displays. They also make the packaging in a lot of the food service industry and grocery industry relies on corrugated packaging some of which you never see right because it comes in those heavy duty like produce for example comes in those heavy duty cardboard crate things well you Um, see it at aldi probably right right Okay. exactly but it's but it's also just um used for shipping Mm. before it even you know reaches the consumer so it's It's everything in between, right, to the Amazon box that comes to your doorstep to sort of the, I call it the hidden cardboard that's all around us that supports the movement of materials and the logistics um, of commerce and especially e-commerce. So they are a major employer in um, Porter County and those jobs wouldn't be there if not for the recycling industry. And there's countless other stories. I could take you all over the state yeah, for every single commodity material that's in your recycling bin and point to jobs that are in existence today because of the recycling industry in the state of Indiana.
0: Well, and that's such an important thing right now in our country and in our economy is the lack of jobs. So what is, so you talk about how recycling can create jobs. What are some other benefits that recycling has beyond the environment? Because when I recycle, that's all I think of, right? That's all I'm like, I wanna help the environment. That's my main pull for Mm -hmm. it, but maybe Mm -hmm. that's not someone's passion or what someone is interested in doing. Maybe someone doesn't care about helping the environment. What are some things that maybe recycling does that we don't even think about?
1: Well, so um, on that environmental side, it reduces emissions. It saves water and it saves energy because when you have to create a, a material and a, a a product, and you have to start from scratch, like literally extraction, mining, you know, cutting down trees, those types of things, there is so much energy, water, and air pollution from that's wrapped up in that process of turning that tree or turning that mind, you know, material into that final product, when you recycle it, you get to cut off like a major portion of that energy, water <clears throat> and emissions that is created as a result of all of that processing, just for the manufacturer refining the, the shipping and the conversion all along that process for all of the materials. Aluminum is a perfect example of this. It is, it is very um, environmentally degrading to mine bauxite for the uh, purpose of creating aluminum. Aluminum right up there with glass is incredibly recyclable. I mean, it's literally an aluminum can to an aluminum can, and that process is so quick as well. When you recycle an aluminum can, it comes back in the marketplace as another aluminum can within like three or four months. The process of mining for bauxite is uh, impacts land, impacts air, impacts water, it's all these sort of um impacts downstream that we don't even see or appreciate but if you recycle an aluminum can it will it will probably stay either within indiana or at least within the midwest in the process of becoming a new can and per ton creates 10 times more jobs than if you were to throw it away when you think about it throwing something away it's a one-way trip right Mm -hmm. you got one guy on a truck Man or woman um, on a truck picking it up at your curbside, delivering it to its final, de- you know, disposal destination, be it a landfill or an incinerator, incinerator, and that's the end of the story. When you put it in the recycling system, now it's going to a sortation facility and getting, you know, collected and baled as a commodity material. Then somebody is going to sell that; they're going to broker that material. Then it's going to get shipped um, on a truck likely to a processing facility where there's jobs there it's going to get turned into a standardized uniform commodity material that then gets sold again gets shipped again and then gets delivered to a manufacturing facility where there's more jobs so you can sort of see that snowball effect of jobs yeah and the, the number of times that a dollar turns over as opposed to throwing something away so about s- over seventy-five percent of municipal solid waste—and this is you know trash from homes—over seventy-five percent of it is is recyclable materials. Indianapolis has a recycling rate currently of seven
0: percent. So we are literally throwing away. Odds. Wait, only seven percent of recyclables are recycled in Indiana. We the recycling
1: rate in Indianapolis is 7% right now.
0: Wow. Yep. Is that low or what does what oh, that compared to other states? Terribly low. Um
1: it, it the range um across the country is anywhere from 20 to 80% and San Francisco being right up there at the mm, 80%, of you course. know. There it's kind of a competitive sport there. Um <laughs> as, as opposed
0: to here. Yeah. So wow. So you have a you do have a big job on your hands. What do you yeah. think? what do you think leads to that why in indiana is there um less recycling than other states like what do what what are the obstacles that people that keep people from recycling so in the state of indiana
1: the recycling rate is approximately 20 percent and across the country wait then what was
0: the seven percent
1: indianapolis oh
0: okay okay
1: yeah so seven percent in indianapolis 20 percent in the state of indiana and the national recycling rate on average is 35%. So that puts Indy at the at the bottom. Bottom, yeah. Yeah, and and especially when you compare it to our peer cities, you know, in the Midwest or even outside the Midwest that are, you know, similar in size and demographics, we we are it, it's not it's not good. We don't we don't look very good stacked up next to our peers.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And
1: you know, really there's a lot of factors contributing To how we kind of got here and so I'll I'll give you a couple of those one is in this state it's really cheap to throw stuff away like we've made it convenient and easy and cheap to throw things away so that's that drives behavior people make decisions based on what's going to cost or not cost them so when it's all when it's cheaper to throw something away that's you know that's what people are going to do and that's because our rates for disposal um, at the landfill are very, very low as as compared to other states across the country, and even here in the Midwest, we're on the low end of our neighbors for uh, cost to throw things away. So that acts as a disincentive for recycling, but also as a disincentive for waste reduction and you know reuse. And then the other thing that's that is impacted us. And this is particularly true in Indianapolis. We have not invested in education on this topic for a long time. And when you've got an entire generation of Hoosiers and Indianapolis residents who don't understand the value and the importance of recycling, and then you make it cheaper to throw things away, It's really a a problem that compounds on itself. So it's really like the snowball effect. And and here we are, you know, 30 years later with low recycling rates and low priority and and really disincentive to recycle.
0: Well, is it getting lower or has it increased
1: at all? Um, It's so in the state of Indiana, it has gotten a little bit better over the last few years since they have been collecting the data. And some would argue that, you know, the state of Indiana is getting better at collecting data. Therefore, the rates are improving.
0: Mm, Okay,
1: nothing significant has changed across the state to account for going from 16% recycling rate to 20%. So it's quite possible that data collection has increased and therefore your recycling numbers look better. So. Yeah, that's, that's in, in place. And then in Indianapolis, we, uh, you have to pay for recycling. You know, If you want to recycle, it is not just provided to you like a trash bin. You have to pay out of pocket and you have to pay significantly more per month. I know it's billed quarterly, but on a, on a comparison, what it would cost if they offered it to every citizen it would be the folks like you and me who are paying for recycling we would actually start paying less because it's economies of scale and when they have to drive down the street and pick up recycling for one out of ten people versus picking up recycling at every curb you know you're you're spending a lot of gas for not much material
0: interesting a lot of problems at play good thing you're Uh, you're there working hard and trying to figure out the solutions to all of those
1: yeah we've got our work cut out for us but we've also got fantastic partners across the state that are so dedicated and have really made this their life's work i mean we've got at the county level we've got solid waste management districts who this is what they do day in and day out they do waste reduction reuse and recycling and they are a critical lifeline for those services in their local communities. Marion County, by the way, doesn't have a solid waste management district, which has been a major contributor to lack of education, uh, lack of services, and um, lack of investment overall into the system here and the infrastructure in Marion County.
0: I'm just curious, what does a day in the life look like for you, because are you meeting with partners all the time or what does it look like on your end
1: yeah so we're, our focus is really on education and on advocacy so we a, a a typical day for me um i have an amazing team of individuals um, in my organization that are working very hard every day to deliver education programs And that looks like everything from making improvements to our website and adding resources to it, to hosting educational webinars for the public for free on how to recycle properly and um, how not to be a wish cycler, to um, putting together, uh, and we're soon launching a new uh, educational program called the Master Recycler Program that will be all online um, and teach folks from the very basic to the very uh, advanced on recycling and the circular economy, kind of on um, self-paced infotainment uh, format that you can sort of participate in, in those interstitial moments of your life, you know, waiting for the bus, um, in the checkout line, those types of moments, like you can do it right from your phone. So working with my staff quite a bit just to support them in the efforts that we are making towards uh, education and advocacy to testifying um, at an interim study committee for the senate environmental affairs committee on the value and importance and job creation potential of recycling in the state of indiana to equip our legislature um, and our elected officials with the information and the um, inspiration often um, for investing in recycling at the state level and, and to really be aware of the policy tools they have to influence behavior, to support that infrastructure, um, those investments and those jobs. Um, so yeah, it's, and then, you know, I'm a, it's a, a nonprofit. So there's always a, an element of fundraising in my day to day as well. So um, it's, a, it's all over the place, but I, I love it. no day is is the same as the day before, and it it's challenging uh constantly, but it's it's I'm so pleased to be able to work with some really amazing people um here in India and all across the state to make this happen.
0: yeah, sounds like you've got something really good going on over there, and in your role specifically um One last big thing that I want to touch on is there has been a lot of attention on systemic racism Mm -hmm. in our community, country and worldwide. How does the work of the Indiana Recycling Coalition fit into this? And how how are you in your role confronting it, too?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, We have been, you know, we've been actually grappling with this issue for the last couple of years. and up until the murder of George Floyd, it was kind of on an individual and personal basis. Um, but the, that event woke us up as an organization to say, we this can't only be a personal endeavor that we as a staff or as a board make. We've got to have it infiltrate and impact every aspect of our existence. And so going from... Personal learning, and we're, we're, we're doing work as a staff um, to encourage and, and collectively uh, support each other in that individual learning to um, thinking about ways we can weave this awareness into everything we do from um, who is on our board and who's not on our board, but how we are engaging with a broader audience um, because, you know, we have to. We may not be able to get a representative sample of the population on our board and maintain it. But what we can do is we can seek out voices and input from marginalized communities, um, underrepresented communities, and really listen to ways we can be meaningfully impactful in the space of environmental justice. There are A lot of times recycling facilities, processing facilities and the manufacturing facilities are located in neighborhoods um, where marginalized populations live. And we need to have a role and have a voice in pointing out those types of injustices Mm -hmm. and supporting the communities that need to have their voices raised up in the process. We are we're thinking about our programs, we're thinking about, you know, outward facing programs. we're thinking about our internal policies um, in ways that we want to expand who it reaches and how it can positively impact communities that maybe we had never considered before the space of sustainability can be a little too white and I say I say that. I I should be more direct in saying that it is way too white. And we need to work to change that and be a part of creating the system um, for sustainability and for climate justice and for environmental justice that is truly representative of all the populations that it impacts. And so from just simple things like looking left and looking right when we are in spaces and and noting who is represented in the decision-making process versus who is impacted by the decisions being made here and calling attention to those types of things to you know reimagining an entire program so that it can reach populations um, that we haven't we haven't typically been focused or even contemplated reaching in the past. So it's it's a long-term process. We are finding and feeling our way through it. We're going to mess up and make mistakes, but we are uh, committed to being part of the change we want to see in the world when it comes to this, this social issue.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I love that you're open and honest about your, the changes you want to make and see in your own community and in your own organization as well. I love how you're taking it into your hands to make this change too.
1: Thanks. Well, and we, we also feel like we're, we're part of the environmental community in the state of Indiana.
0: Mm-hmm. And
1: so to the extent that we're thinking about us as individuals, also us as an organization, we also want to be aware of our role within this broader community and, and support and reach out to and lift up voices within our broader community, learn from each other and learn together as we go. Because it's, as you probably know, it's a, it's a pretty, it can be overwhelming to try to think, oh my gosh, how are we going to undo decades, centuries right. of, of oppression and, uh, and honestly, white supremacy in this world, and it's not going to happen overnight, and there's not, you know, a quick fix to this so we we are committed as an organization to staying in this work. And evolving over time, because that's the that's how we got here and, and we think that's also going to be how we come out of it, but with a sense of urgency as well, so this doesn't become a fad issue that
0: dissolves.
1: That's I think that's probably something we're um, as never before we are more aware of.
0: Yeah. How much it's just going to be a long-term process of making changes over time. Yep. Um, All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing all of your recycling tips and thoughts and all of that of how we can all make a change in our own In our own world today too with helping the recycling industry Um, so with the end of podcast questions what is the best or most recent book that you have read Um, so admittedly I'm reading a ton
1: right now on racial justice issues awesome and the last book I finished and and by the way I'm a listener of books okay um, as more than a reader but I often will buy the book and listen so I can go back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that's the case with the, the, the latest one I completed was White Fragility by Robin DiAngelo. Yes. Um, who is a, a white woman. And I say she's the first white author that I've been reading since the murder of George Floyd. It's all been people of color. But I, I read that through uh, a study club, through my church, and we're reading it as a staff right now, and we're um, having conversations, and we're learning about, you know, being able to recognize and address white fragility when it rears its ugly head in the world, um, because as, you know, if we're if we're committed to being allies in this uh, social movement, we have to be prepared to be disruptors. And that's some of the hardest work to do. Um, So we are we are taking on that one head on. So that that's probably a book I'm going to read like a few times here in the next couple of months.
0: I love that you're reading that as a as a staff and as an organization.
1: Yeah, we, um, that's part of our commitment to this topic was, you know, we want to, we literally want to support learning mm-hmm. at the individual, the organizational, and the community level. And so we, we wanted to kind of start from a common space of understanding and knowledge. And um, a few of us have taken the two-day undoing racism or interrupting racism workshop that Child Advocates offers here in Indianapolis. Um, And that was a really impactful first step. Um, But since, you know, COVID and the challenges around that, we decided that we will continue to do that as we are able. In the meantime, you know, we can do this other shared experience of Mm -hmm. reading and studying this book. So...
0: Amazing. That's such a cool initiative within the organization. Um, who or what is illuminating in your life right now? Oh, gosh. Um,
1: you know, I have a lot of mentors that I um, stay connected to that, that really help me show up in the world in a, in a better way every day. And I would say staying connected to those mentors has been really helpful to me. One of those mentors is my predecessor in this role, who's State Representative Carrie Hamilton. Um, seeing how she has evolved as a leader, um, as an elected official, um, has been really inspiring to me. Um, to see how she has embraced, you know, being a politician in these very difficult times politically. Um, and holding steady to her beliefs and her values and um, living that out every day. Uh, I think that's been really inspiring to me. And then she just left such a wonderful legacy in this organization um, in her nine years in this role of building it up to be a really professional, well-respected statewide organization. And so um, I feel committed and, um, you know, responsible for maintaining the legacy that she built in this organization and continuing to move it in a positive trajectory.
0: And then obviously we illuminated your organization a lot, but what is another organization that you would like to illuminate?
1: So I am a really big fan of the organization. uh, It's called Four Ocean and it is, it's not a nonprofit. But it ha- it's a, um, a public benefit corporation, and they're all about cleaning up plastic from the ocean and um, spreading awareness about sustainable practices and managing waste and single-use plastic uh, and making an impact in the world, and, and doing it in a way that uh, combines fashion with activism. And uh, you've probably seen the bracelets. That's
0: what I was going to say. Are they the ones that do the bracelets?
1: Yeah. Um, So it's like, uh, and they, they make such a really strong connection between this, you know, the sale of one bracelet cleans up, you know, uh, removes a pound Mm -hmm. of plastic waste from oceans and waterways. Um, So I really appreciate that. An organization that is, you know, a for-profit business model but has kind of a social uh, consciousness to it—that uh, is, that is raising awareness in a way that's pretty cool.
0: Yeah, it's cool to see organizations or companies do things like that. Like Adidas just did the shoes that were mm-hmm. made from plastic in the oceans.
1: Yeah, and there's—I think that there's more and more of that, and I think it's great. Consumers are increasingly aware of the impacts and they are invested in researching and understanding the impacts of mm-hmm. their purchase decisions. And so um, I applaud companies that, that do that and that do it in a way that provides transparency and they're not just greenwashing, you know? Um, as, as a B Corp, you are, and 4ocean is a B Corp by the way, Um, You are signing up to voluntarily be transparent about your actions and your impacts uh, as an organization on a whole variety of levels, um, environmental, social, economic, etc. So um, I have a a soft spot in my heart for B Corps, um, which there's very few of them in Indiana, but hopefully there will be more in the future because I think it's a it, it sort of um, takes a little bit of the evil sting out of capitalism in my,
0: yeah. <laughs> in my opinion, so. Yeah, and then finally, what is your one message to send to the world? Um, I think, you know, know better, do
1: better. I think as human beings, we all need to be committed to constantly being in search of knowing better and taking upon ourselves that responsibility and then letting that uh, be the imperative to do better. Every day should be a left foot, right foot, know better, do better. And there should be a cadence to our life that displays that pattern of showing up in the world better today than we were yesterday and, and just doing that on repeat. So. Um, I think with a lot that's going on in the world right now, it would be uh, a great mantra for us all to have to know better and do better every single day.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of the Illuminate Podcast. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Allison Mitchell. And if you want to continue to follow along with all the things that the Indiana Recycling Coalition is doing, you can find them on their website at indianarecycling.org or on their Instagram and Facebook pages at IN Recycling. That's where you can find all the updates on the organization and all the fun things that they're doing that Allison talked about. And come over and give the Illuminate podcast a follow on social media. We are at the Illuminate Podcast on Instagram and at Illuminate underscore pod on Twitter. And we'd love to hear from you. We want to hear how you are enjoying the episodes. Maybe if you loved this episode, you can head over to your podcast player and give us a rating and review. We really appreciate you taking the time to leave a review and it really helps us grow the show and find new listeners. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed this episode and you have a great rest of your week.